So we're coming to the end of the retreat, so it's not finished yet, because uh, we finish uh, officially tomorrow at lunchtime. But tonight, I wanted to look a little bit at, in a way, slowly ending the retreat and, in a way, reentering our daily life. And to do that, I want uh, first to look a little bit at, actually, what we offer or seem to offer to the Buddha. You might wonder, I mean, I don't know about the one who are at the back, you know, what are they doing, you know? You know, kind of, they lead the incense, they put a little water, you know, and they lead the candle, and my matches are a bit funky, but generally I managed to lit it, you know, and then as soon as we finished, I, uh, I switch off the incense. You might think, this is weird. Uh, I am allergic to incense. It's a little uh, kind of a problem. <laughs> so, uh, in terms in term of uh, Korean son, these actually all have a significance. So, you know, it's, just, it's not just for fun. It's actually each of them has a meaning. And that's why they are, in a way, including in that short ceremony, one could say. And also to see that in a way that ceremony is really honoring what we practice, what we studied, and everything we benefited from in Korea. Because people were so generous and they supported us so much. And so in a way that little ceremony is a connection with all that support, all that kindness they gave us. And so, each of these are actually, uh, you could say, a symbol, a representation of awakening, representation of aspects of awakening. I mean, and this, if there is something which is really characteristic, characterize Korean song, or I would say any Zen Chan song, is this famous word, awakening. But generally, instead of awakening, generally you have a better word, enlightenment, you know, enlightenment. And I personally don't use it because uh, enlightenment makes me think of a Christmas tree. You know, so that at some point everybody leads up, you know, on the cushion. And it's actually more about awakening. And I like nowadays, I'm a little, I'm really not very geeky, but uh, I uh, noticed I have, I follow Twitter, Instagram, thing like that. And I noticed this thing, oh, is woke. W-O-K-E, is woke, means easy, oh, is awake to intersectionality. And I thought, well, good one, good one. So I'm trying also to be woke. And, but you know, I have lots to learn. 
And so awakening in what way? What are these saying? The first one is you lead the candle. And what happened when you lead the candle? Two things happen. I mean, actually, three things happen. One thing is that it's illuminating. So it illuminates outside of itself. Another thing, it's illuminated, which means the candle becomes different. Instead of being opaque, now it's kind of more lit from within. And the last thing that happened with the candle is that it disappears as it gives light. So in a way to see in what the practice, what we're doing here, is very much first about illuminating. But what does it mean, illuminating? It means to illuminate for others. But does it mean I'm going to go home and tell them what's what? Now, everybody must be mindful. And you must ask the question, what is this? You know, that's the only thing to do. But actually, that's not what it means. I think, how can you be illuminating for others? I think you can be illuminating of, for others if you have calmness, if you have a quality of groundedness. Many years ago, I used to visit an old lady in a nursing home to help a friend. And what that lady liked is that I would just be quiet and just sit there, because this lady used to, was a Quaker, so she used to go to meetings and be quiet with others. And in the nursing home, it was just like kind of so much agitation all the time. And so what she likes is that when I came for 20, 30 minutes, we could be quiet together. So she could have a little taste of that memory of being quiet of settling, of grounding. Or we can be illuminating just by our kindness. I had a friend, she used to come on these retreats, and she used to say, oh, the effect lasts at least three weeks. And what she meant by the effect was that when she came home, and there was some difficulty with her daughter, then for a few days, weeks, she could be different with her daughter. And she would not react. She could kind of, in a way, be illuminating and kind of really try to be with her in a different way. So in a way, it's kind of looking, what is it I can bring to others? I have a friend who lives in South Africa. And he has this amazing quality of being fearless. So when you're with him, you don't feel fear. And it's amazing to be with somebody who has this quality of fiercelessness. 
And so in a way, this illuminating is in a way, what can I bring to others by just my simple presence? I remember long ago I was <laughs> playing cards with a family who had come from far. So we play, there is kind of this kind of whist you play in France, belote. So we're playing belote. And the uncle, the great uncle, was a type of card player who was extremely agitated and vociferous. And he kind of agitated everybody else. Did not agitate me. So I kind of remained calm. And then later my great aunt said, oh, thank you, it was so nice. You were so calm. <laughs> it really helped the situation. So just looking at that, that we can illuminate for others with kindness, with stability, with a sense of peace, a sense of fearlessness. So each of us, in a way, will illuminate for others in a different ways. Because we have different quality, different cultivation. So we're not kind of each the same. Is what each of us, in a way, can bring to others. Then, illuminated. So that actually part of this awakening is really about becoming clearer, clearer to ourselves. And so I think the two qualities go together. If I can be clearer to myself, I will have a different relationship with the world. Or because if I am confused, if I am kind of caught in misperception or caught in past stories, I'm kind of in the dark. And I think part of this practice is really about clarifying. Not that there is nothing in the mind, but can I be clearer? Can I kind of, in a way, cultivate that quality, experience that quality? Does not mean we can be clearer all the time to the same degree? But that we can experience it, and also we can cultivate it, and that it's important. And so at that level, we might want also, in a way, what is going to help that candle to be illuminating and to be illuminated. First is that nobody puts their hand on it and kind of smother it, or that there is not a lot of wind around it, or that somebody doesn't pour water over it. And I think it's really questioning a little bit in our uh, daily life. How do I feed the clarity? How do I smother the quality, this clarity? I think this is, especially with uh, nowadays, I know. I have my little apps and I look at them, the BBC, the Monde, Twitter, Facebook, but just a little bit. Because if it's too much, it clouds the mind. And that person says this, well, he must be right. That person says that, oh. And what I found fascinating is kind of, you know, 
everybody declaring their right. I have got it. And they said the thing, totally different things. I'm always so interested by the different opinion and how they arrive to these opinions. And so in a way to see what is it that will help the clarity? What is it that will in a way cover it or smother it or extinguish it? So that's really, I think, something in a way to cultivate, to look at in daily life. And then, of course, the other quality of this disappearing as you give light. And that's a difficult word, because generally we call it selflessness. But in this selflessness, often there is this idea with this word of self-abnegation. But I don't think that's what this is about. Like in a way there is this impression sometimes that then if I disappear, if I am selfless, then everybody or everything is going to take me over. But what does it mean to be selfless? What does it mean to give radiance as you disappear? It doesn't mean that you don't exist. Because in a way, you still have the light. The light is there. But the candles is going down. But you still have the light. So the disappearing is not in a vacuum. Something is going on. And I think it's interesting to look in our life when we have this moment of de-grasping. When we have this moment where we experience ourselves and others in a different way. I mean, of course, sometimes we can experience this on retreat. Many years ago, I remember sitting at Gaia House. And, and at the time, I was living in a community, an egalitarian community, which is really the toughest to live in. And you know, you live with 12 other people, and you know, we're all Buddhists, but we're not Buddhists, Buddhistic every day. Then we have these famous meetings, and they were a little tumultuous in egalitarian community. And so, you know, there was little kind of niggles, but I was on the retreat. And suddenly I had this experience of total open heart. And the way I would describe it, there was nobody I could not love. And generally you are, yes, 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 I love everybody, but not that one. I mean, she did this to me, he did that to me. Just a little there, there. Well, they'll get a little light, but a little darker, you know? <laughs> Them, yeah, they get lots of light. But it was a, so beautiful to feel in that moment that there is nobody you would not, not love. That you would love everybody. Everybody was included. And that's what selflessness is about. 
is not disappearing for others, but it's a quality of the heart of being in the world in this open, caring way, which will change the way we feel, change the way others feel. And I know for myself, actually experiencing the kind of impermanence, truly experiencing impermanence, seeing my father die, then suddenly I looked at everybody in such a different way. Instead of meeting the story I had with them, I started to meet the person in that moment. And it was such a different encounter. So that's what selflessness is about. It's not that you're not there, but you're there in this clear, open way, in whatever encounter there is. Then you have the incense. And so the incense has two aspects. One aspect is that it pervades everywhere. And the second aspect is that it disappears as it gives the fragrance. So the first thing pervades everywhere is kind of the quality of, you say, not being biased, not being kind of saying, oh, I like those, so the fragrance go all there. All that way, those one I don't know about them, so they don't get it, you know. So it's actually no saying, it goes everywhere, regardless. So there is this quality of not being biased, to really open in compassion to the whole world. And then there is this interesting story in terms of that, the fact that the incense is burning, is spreading its fragrance. And my teacher often compared it. He said, it's a bit also, like seemingly, I don't know if it's true, but seemingly, there is an orchid in Korea, which grows in the mountain, which is wild. And seemingly that orchid has an incredible smell. And my teacher, what he used to say is, if people are around, it's fantastic. Beautiful smell. But if people are not around, the smell continues. So the, the, the beautiful fragrance does not depend on the acknowledgement of somebody. So in a way, he's kind of seeing here that you can give this quality, but you can still experience it for yourself, even if nobody is around. You don't, I mean, this is why the, the first vow is a little tricky, because the first vow, as I mentioned before, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And personally, I prefer a different translation. Because that one gives me the impression, you wake up in the morning, okay, how many am I going to save today? Okay, let's say five, five. Okay, let's, let's go. 
what can I find? You know, I need to save them. You know, I have all this, you know, tomorrow I have 10, you know, so, so you have this kind of, you know, I am going, you know, to save you. Even if you don't want to, I'll be saving you. Because I need to, I have a list, you know, all of them, all sentient beings, you know, and it's on my plate. But personally, I prefer, I would like to translate it. I vow to serve them all. And I vow to save those I encounter. And how is that encounter? And so in a way, it's kind of looking at that, that kind of the, the incense, giving the fragrance. How is that encounter? When there is people, when there is no people, can the quality still be there? And then again, there is that quality of selflessness, of being there for others, or having less self-centeredness. But again, it doesn't mean that we do not exist. And I think what we have to see is in a way the selflessness is to us too. Compassion is to ourselves too. Because often there is this idea of compassion, it's always for others. And I think compassion, again, depends on conditions. So since I am um, 60, uh, because in Korea, uh, they have this tradition, which very much speaks to me, that once you got your 60, you know, you've lived 60 years in their calendar about 62 years, then you've done the cycle of the 12 several times, and after that, it's bonus. Because, you know, if you live up to 60, that's not bad. And so after that, it's considered a little bonus. So there, in the past, what it meant is that you can do what you want. You can smoke, you can drink, you can dance, and so you see all these elderly people, you know, <laughs> drinking, dancing, you know, it's wonderful. I mean, now they might do it less, but when I was there in the 70s, they were really doing like this, dancing in the bus and, you know, dancing in the temple too. No, no, they were great. And I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. You know, you do your duty for 62 years and now you can have fun. You know, enjoy yourself with what remains. So when I got to be a 60, 62, I decided to do that. I decided that, yeah, I wasn't going to write books for now. And my priority was going to be my mother's. My mother lived downstairs who is losing her memory. And so generally, I have lots of space. I have lots of time for her because she is my priority. And then the rest is after that. And so I'm very patient most of the time. But, I, you know, I have the time. She rings me because she's downstairs. I'm upstairs a little bell, she rings me, I need this, or I don't remember that. And so generally, yeah, I am selfless. I'm really there for her. And then in January, when I had this uh, flu, everybody had, and really bad, I was like, because generally I think, you know, yeah, I can do it. And then 
you know, I bring her to play cards, and the person was saying, why, it's so nice of you to bring her to play cards. I said, it's nothing. I just bring her, I come back to pick her up. I mean, you know, it's nothing. But when I was here, instead of, yeah, I can do this, I was like, what is the least I can do here? I want to rest. I want to be in my bed. I don't want to, you know. And so here, I could see the compassion. I mean, I still had enough to do the minimum, but I did not want to do more. Normally, I have lots of space. But there, I felt I needed more space for myself. So I think we have to see that when we talk about selflessness, it's actually opening in compassion to humanity, our humanity, others' humanity. And then there is the last one, the water. I mean, we're not doing it properly here, but at the beginning I used to do it because normally, normally you are supposed to give fresh water, pristine water every time. So in the temple you go to the, there is a source. Generally all temples have a little source. So you go to get the source water and then you give that fresh source water. So, you know, three o'clock in the morning, you go and get the fresh water, lunchtime, fresh water, evening, fresh water. And it's so complicated to go down there, get it from the toilet, you know, and then being back. So now I have renounced. We just have the same water, it's fine. But never mind. The emptiness of the water or the freshness of the water. But why the water? The water actually, what is interesting with the water is not, I mean, you would think the water of life, but not at all. It's actually about the quality of the water. The fact that the water will take the shape of the container. So often they give two examples. One, is the example of the water in the river. who will just go everywhere in different shape. And generally, we'll actually, they point out that the water of a river will generally go low. We'll try to go for the low thing instead of for the high. I mean, generally, the water doesn't go up like this. Generally, it finds any way that it can go down. So now often you have this impression of awakening at this big bang top of the mountain. And I say, no, look, it's like the water. It adapts to the ordinariness. It adapts to whatever is going on. And also it adapts to the container. So it's flexible. And to me, this is an important quality that we can bring in our daily life. Of course, we cannot be flexible all the time. I agree. Sometimes we, mm, no, no, I'm not going to change. Mm. But the idea is, can we, and to me this is really uh, what is kind of a little special about this practice of questioning, is the flexibility. The fact that by the fact that we ask the question, which is not being answered by a definite definition, we kind of, what is it? 
What is this? Actually, it breaks through that tendency to want to be certain, to be right, to be the only one. I mean, it's so weird that we can make anything solid out of anything. I mean, I don't do this nowadays, but in the past, you know, people would, uh, there would be the TV on, and then, you know, we would have football match. And then I would sit, and within five minutes, I, for, I was for the red against the blue, but I did not know them. But immediately, oh yes, Zeus, yes, go, 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 Zeus one, bat, bat, go, go, go. You know? I mean, it's kind of weird that suddenly, you know, they're French, wow, you know? They must win, they must win the poor thing. And so, in a way, to see we have such a tendency for survival purpose, certainty, fixity, this. And so in a way, the practice of the questioning helps us with this flexibility, adaptability, where there is more choices. There is, and I would say there is more creativity. So in the water, as adapting, as in a way kind of creativity. So that's about the, the three things. And then again, this is kind of, this is the first time we do this, because generally we try to do things different, Stephen and I. So we might generally talk about different things. But this time, it's a strange retreat, we decided, no, we did not decide, it's just we both decided to talk about the same thing. So I'm doing the same tonight. And this is about uh, taking, like he did yesterday, the last three pictures of the Oxherder. So he told you about the, all of them yesterday. And I want to look a little like he did about the last three. So the eighth is just a circle. That's it. Then the next one is the plum blossom. And then the last one is a raggedy person going back into the marketplace. So the eighth one is very much about emptiness. And that is interesting in terms of going back into daily life. Emptiness, my life is full, full of connection, full of responsibility, full of this, full of that. And this is what is interesting in a retreat. Why is a retreat the way it is? Because it is actually the shape of it is a bit of an emptying. Emptying of duty. I mean, you have a, the, a little work every day. But that's it. You don't have other responsibility. And so in a way, everything is kind of, you could say, simplified. And so to see, because emptiness might give you the impression nothing must be there, nothing must exist. But can we think about that image of the circle as actually a simplification of form? I mean, you could have a very complicated picture, 
Instead, you just have a circle. But you don't, I mean, they could have just left a blank space. I mean, that would be emptiness. Nothing. But they, don't, they just did not just leave nothing. They left a circle. So then, in a way, we left with something which is simplifying. And so on this retreat, in a way, we were simplifying. And so, in a way, what happens if we simplify? I mean, once when I was in Korea, the retreat generally are not in silence there, but I mean, you are sitting 10 hours a day, and then, you know, you don't have much time to talk anyway. So, but once I decided I was going to be in silence for a month. So for a month, I was not going to speak. It was my heroic kind of practitioner. And so for a month, I did not speak. And what was wonderful about it was that at the end of it, I felt this simplification of communication. But what I would call a helpful, beneficial simplification. And suddenly I could see myself thinking, hmm, do I need to say this? Do I need to say this now? Maybe not. Because this is what is interesting about speech, that often we speak faster than we think. It has an energy of its own, and it can become really elaborate. And you have this thinking, this feeling, I need to say it. They need to hear it. But that practice really taught me not. You know, it can wait, it cannot happen. It doesn't need to be so. And so in a way, learning from the silence, learning from the simplicity. I mean, you had a little kind of uh, internet detox. <laughs> you survived. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not bad to have a little internet detox. I mean, we, Stephen and I, we don't have smartphone. We are prehistoric in that way. We don't have a smartphone. We just have like a mobile phone to phone each other. That's it. And so when we go in town, when we go to eat in a restaurant, we're stuck with each other, you know. (laughs) And so we smile, we talk. And around us, everybody's like, and I'm amazed. You know, they go to this really expensive restaurant, really beautiful. And they're looking and, you know, each of them are looking like, you know. I found that amazing, amazing, you know. And so in a way, in simplification, I think there is also about, can I be here? I mean, yes, a smartphone can be useful, but can I be here? And if I am here, can I be here with myself? Can I be here with others? That picture is also about that. The simplification of, can I be here? So in a way, looking a little bit in daily life, what does it mean to empty? What does it mean to simplify? Then the next one, so the next one, the picture is called coming back 
to the original place. So it's not saying going to paradise. It's not saying going to nirvana. It's not saying going beyond. It's actually saying coming back to the original place. So in a way, you, come, you go back to where you started. And I think this is a very important point, that when you go back to your daily life, I mean, I presume you've been meditating for a while, so your family don't worry about you too much anymore. They don't think you're going to come back and look kind of, I don't know, shaved or floating or different. I mean, by now they know you come back and you are more or less the same person. I mean, you might be a little more calm and cool. And so, in a way, the practice is not about being someone else. That, I think, is a very important point. But it's more about how can I be myself in the world and possibly bringing that quality of openness, of stability, of creative engagement. So going back to the original place is actually back to this questioning, back to this wonderment. And to me, there is this practice, which I think is a very beautiful practice in uh, the Theravada Vipassana tradition, which is, you know, you have the four qualities, and then you have the third quality. Generally, people know about loving kindness. They know about compassion. And often it's a little forgotten, the third one, which is mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A. And personally, I think the other side of the questioning is actually mudita, is actually appreciative joy, altruistic joy. Because in the, in the simplifying you also have that I can appreciate what is there in the kind of, in a simple way. Because often we have the impression I must make something, that it be the meditation, that it be my life, it must have more, more. But I think the question is also, can I appreciate this right now? There is a beautiful thing on the internet, on YouTube. I mean, it's a little hard to find. Uh, and it is kind of nearly like an ode, like a poem, to this great master in Korea, Pop jong He was also a great writer. He was a political activist. He was kind of quite an important figure in Korea. And... He was also a bit like my great-uncle, monastic great-uncle, so I knew him very well. And then he died a few years back. And what was interesting with him is that he started out, like when we first knew him in the 70s, we would always love to go to his place. You know, and he had an hermitage, the simple life, but the very nice simple life. <laughs> you know, he had his little CD with his little, you know, classical music, and it was all very beautiful, calligraphy and tea, and it was, you know, the simple life, but nice, very nice. 
And what happened is, I mean, he, he sold millions of books and things of that nature. And he was actually there at the time in the 70s because he, he had signed a petition against the government, the dictatorship, and then he was under house arrest in our temple. So it was kind of nice for us to have him because he was a great, great uh, person. But then, as he continued with his practice, and you see, as he was becoming more famous and more people wanted to see him, he was continuing with his practice and he wanted to simplify. And so then he was kind of starting to move from this fancy hermitage to a little more simple hermitage till he got to a place in a mountain really difficult of access where actually he would do everything himself. He would not have any attendant, he would chop his wood, and his favorite thing was a little wooden stool he had built himself, a very kind of a little funky, raggedy little kind of stool. And so in that YouTube thing, as an elegy to him, they put that stool in the main central station. So you have, I mean, the main central station in Seoul, the capital, you have people everywhere, and it's all kind of, you know, modern and everything. And in the middle of that, you have this stool, and everybody go around with it. And it's such a fabulous image of, in a way, coming back to the original place. I think that's what he was doing, coming back to the original place. And then the last one is the raggedy person coming back to the marketplace with bestowing hand, with gifts. And so in a way, I think what is important to see here is that each of us have different gifts. That in a way, the practice is going to cultivate us. I think over time, the practice cultivates us. And so it's going to cultivate us in many different ways. And so some of us might do something with the arts, some of us might do something in social work, in medicine, some of us might do something in being a secretary in an office, but just the way you are making a difference to that office. And so in a way, that last picture is about how can I bring something? You could nearly say, how can I bring something to the table? How can I bring something to my environment? And it doesn't have to be heroic. I remember once we were doing this um, work retreat where the people came in the morning, we gave them a little instruction, they went to work, and in the evening, we kind of, kind of looked at what happened that day. And one of the things I recommended was that, can you make today a little difference in the office or where you work? Just in terms of the atmosphere, just in terms of the harmony, just in terms of the relationship. And so this lady came back and she said, oh, my job is to actually, uh, I, uh, I am a porter and I am in like kind of a, place where we have different potters and as we do the pots and people visit us, 
Then we chat. And she said, generally, because she's a Buddhist, a meditator, I'm not too kind of, I don't like the chatting because generally it's kind of backbiting other people. So it's kind of generally unpleasant type of chit-chatting. And then she decided to go, and she thought, well, maybe I could try to make it different, because generally she just don't say anything. So if you don't say anything, at least you don't say something bad. But this time, she suggested very skillfully, could we talk about something which could be inspiring, which could be meaningful, and she set it up in such a way that actually that's what happened. So as I did the part, in a way the conversation were in a way kind, meaningful, and it was more kind of the atmosphere that was actually very different. So I think it's kind of like this last picture. What in my small way, it doesn't have to be big. How can I bring something to my family? How can I bring something? to my work environment? How can I bring something to the environment around us? I love this idea of this. Um, there is these people at the moment who do this kind of uh, guerrilla uh, gardening. So they'll put seed where there is cracks and where there is kind of ground in the city. And then you have kind of these things flowering here and there. And I think this is a wonderful idea. Each of us can find different way to do that. And my time is up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.